Galatians chapter 5, verse number 13, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, writes this, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, even as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Look down in chapter 6. Let's read these first two verses. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you tonight with our hearts Open unto you, Lord, needs that have been shared and, and, and born amidst us and amongst us. And Father, just things that are in our life that are so much bigger than our capability, bigger than our wisdom, uh, bigger than whatever, uh, you know, mechanisms or, or abilities that we might have to try to change things and try to control situations. There's just things, Lord, that dwarf us, that make us aware of our weakness, of our insufficiency. And Lord, I praise your name that we have such things as that, because even if we felt up to the task, we wouldn't be. Even if we felt like we could handle it, we couldn't. And Lord, what a blessed thing it is that you have laid before our eyes our inability that we might look to your all-sufficiency, that we might trust in you. I pray that you would answer these requests according to your will. And Lord, I pray that you'd do it in such a way that glory would be given only unto you. Bless the preaching now we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In Galatians chapter number 5, I want to preach to you on this simple thought. I, I say simple. It, it is simple, I think, as we declare it, but I think it becomes uh, far more profound as we expound through it. But I want to preach to you tonight on the thought and the idea of walking in the Spirit. What it means to walk in the Spirit, and more particularly, what walking in the Spirit produces in our lives. It's interesting, there are two sort of co comparisons Contrast, I think a big fancy word for it might be juxtapositions. Two things that Paul lays side by side and exposes uh, between the two of them, which is the appropriate course for the Christian uh, and which is the effective course for the, for the Christian as well. The first is the idea of law and liberty. He says in verse number 13, you've been called unto liberty. Uh, he will go on to talk about the law and the weakness of the law, the inability of the law to effectuate change in a person's life. And, you know, that's what we find in the Bible. The, the law could tell a man how he was wrong, but it couldn't make a man live right. 
didn't have the ability to do so, could not change the way a man behaved. And for in fact, the only way that they could respond to that or typically did respond to it was in the energy of the flesh. At least that seems to be the case when you look at those that were living in the time of Paul and in the earthly ministry of our Lord. Uh, they responded to all these constraints and regulations that were given in the law through the energy of the flesh. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because it did not produce in them a sanctified life. We see this in the Pharisees. I mean, these are some of the most straight-walking people around, but Christ calls them the children of the devil. Uh, he said that they are vipers. He said that they are wicked men, whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Uh, it hadn't produced in them a true, genuine righteousness in the eyes of God. And the reason is because, though there was nothing wrong with the law in and of itself, that's what Paul says, the law is good, the law is righteous, but he said, I'm carnal, I'm sold under sin. So when we try to live the Christian life through the energy of the flesh, uh, be, a, be us Jew or Gentile, be us under the law or uh, professing to be walking in liberty, uh, when we try to do it in the energy of the flesh, we'll always fail. I made this statement to a guy uh, this past week I was talking to and counseling with and we were talking about walking in the Spirit. And I said to him, you know, whatever we do in our lives, if we've done it under the energy of the flesh, it's not Bible Christianity. It doesn't matter how close it looks to Bible Christianity. It might be that uh, to the uh, observer, they would say that there's no meaningful distinction between the way somebody walking in the Spirit and the way that a person living the false and uh, hypocritical life of a Pharisee might appear. But you see, it's not about pleasing men. It's about pleasing God. And so in order to please God, we can't do it without faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. The only way to please Him is to walk in the Spirit. And so as we read through Paul's writings here, the Holy Ghost teaching here, we find that he lays side by side these ideas of liberty and law. Not to vilify the Old Testament law. Not to suggest that liberty cannot be abused. In fact, he... He says to us that there's a certain way we use liberty. Can I tell you, there's a lot of New Testament Christians that abuse liberty. When you're set free, you have the choice to go and do right or you have the choice to go and do wrong. Uh, we see this in our justice system on a regular uh, basis with what they call recidivism. People that are turned loose and they're given liberty. And the idea would be we've reformed them, Brother Ken. We fixed what's wrong with them. We're going to send them back out. Now they're going to be productive citizens. They're going to pick up trash when they see it on the side of the road. And they're going to, they're going to, you know, they'll never jaywalk and they'll always do what's right. Now some of them I'm sure do, but a great number of them don't. They wind up right back in the same place that they were at. They've misused their liberty. So the law, of course, could be misused under the Old Testament. Liberty in the New Testament can be misused as well. But he lays those two things side by side. Corresponding to those two things, he lays the flesh and the spirit. Now, this is not to suggest. I want to be cautious in how I say what I'm about to say. In the Old Testament, they didn't do what they did in the spirit. And you say, preacher, how do you know that? Because the spirit of God didn't indwell them. Now, they may have done what they did in sincerity. God may have honored that sincerity. But the thing that energized them in the Old Testament to live the way that they lived was never the Spirit of God, uh, excepting a few very strange, unusual situations in which the Spirit of God might empower, like He did Samson, like He did David, uh, like He even did Saul when Saul prophesied for a specific task. But the average everyday believer in the Old Testament, uh, he didn't do what he did in the Spirit. He couldn't because he didn't have the Spirit of God indwelling him. 
And so the Apostle Paul, he's not trying to castigate Old Testament saints. He is trying to say this to us, that we operate under a new standard. We operate under a new power. We are energized and empowered in a different way than Old Testament saints were. And that ought to produce some things in our life. So he lays side by side the idea of the spirit and the flesh. What are we uh, motivated by? What is guiding us? What is directing us? Is it our ambitions? Is it our impulses? What feels good? What seems right? Our own understanding? Or rather, are we allowing the Spirit of God to be our guide in every matter of our life? And let me just say before I get into the message, and I don't know if I'm into it or not, but before I get any further in it, let me just say, uh, when we when we use the term walking in the Spirit, here's what we mean. We mean not leaning unto our own understanding but seeking God's wisdom about things. And we mean giving the Spirit of God the right of way in our life. And what I mean to say is this, it doesn't necessarily mean that we walk a step and pray and then walk a step and pray and then walk a step and pray, although I will say this to you, if you live that way, you get farther than the man that runs. Amen? But it's not necessarily to say that that's how we have to live our life, but it is to say that we ought to live in constant communion with the Lord day in and day out in our prayer life and we ought to allow the Spirit of God the right of way. Uh, when we go to make a decision, He pricks our heart and says, now nah, it's not the right way to do it. We ought to say, yes, sir, Lord. If that's what you want out of my life, then that's what I'll do. Rather, most people, I think, live leaning under their own understanding. You know why? That's our default setting. Uh, that's, that's the demo setting for human nature. Uh, that, that's how we come from the factory, quote, unquote, is, is we just lean. We just do what seems right to us. Listen, as a believer that's been indwelt by the Spirit of God and energized, quickened by the life of Christ, that should have changed for you and I. That doesn't mean that you and I are not guilty at times and maybe more often guilty than we are not of uh, of allowing ourselves to lean under our own understanding. But that's not how God designed the Christian life. So whatever it is that we're doing, if we're doing it in the flesh, we may call it Christianity, but it's not Christianity. It might be a, a fairly good counterfeit of Christianity, but it's not Christianity. And that's what Paul's driving at in this passage. So we notice two things by way of introduction. The first is a word about liberty. In verse number 13, he says this, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Now this is laid in juxtaposition to this idea of the law, meaning that as a New Testament Christian, we don't do what we do for the Lord because we're afraid to do otherwise. God's given us the choice. We are not bound by uh, present and persistent temporal consequences and punishments for what we do wrong. In fact, that's why a lot of people abuse the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ is because uh, there's not the uh, foreboding and overbearing punishment that the Mosaic Law would have brought. Listen, if you was living in Israel in the days of the law and you did something contrary to the law, somebody was going to let you know about it. Somebody was going to tell you about it. There was a prescribed mechanism and means of dealing with that trespass. And so they lived in a state of fear as regarded the law. Now, it's not necessarily to say that fear negates faith. A man can have both. And they lived under that constant fear, that constant foreboding. Think about the New Testament structure, however. Now, the Bible, of course, tells us that there are consequences to our sin, to your sin, to my sin. We're going to have to face those consequences. But isn't it interesting that the Lord has uh, forestalled the worst consequences of our sin until we see Him face to face? And you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, if a man is a drunkard, uh, the worst thing that will happen to him is not cirrhosis of the liver. It'll be when he stands before the Lord and has to face him whom he's disappointed. 
Uh, if a person lives and, and engages in adultery or fornication, the diseases that may rack their body are not the worst punishment that they'll receive. Indeed, they'll have to stand and face the Lord one day and give an account for how they have lived. And so as we live our lives, we don't have this hammer hanging over our head all the time because that's not how God seeks to motivate us. Uh, God wants us to serve Him because we want to serve Him. And so He's given us the liberty to make choices in our life. We're not bound by a temporal, social structure that mandates we live a certain way. We're to be perfectly honest. If anything, the way the world mandates we live is not too tight, it's too loose. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, so we're not living in that in that situation as an Old Testament Israelite would have been. So we have the reality of our liberty here. God has loosed us from the law, Jew and Gentile alike. We're not bound under the law. Uh, we can't read the book of Galatians, I think, rightly and come away saying we are bound by the law. We've been given liberty in Christ Jesus. But now notice what our response should be to this liberty. He says, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. I think this speaks to much of the problem in the modern church today. Is while they all want to talk about liberty, what they really mean is license. And there's a difference between the two. Uh, they want to talk about pardon, but what they really mean is permissiveness. Uh, whatever we've got, and this is why I, I'm saying it this way, whatever we've got, if it, if it does not make us look more like Jesus Christ, it's not liberty in the fashion and intent that God designed it for. He didn't uh, free us from the constraints of the Old Testament law so that we might live to a lower standard, but to a higher standard. In other words, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't take us out from under the law. He lifted us up above the law. He told his disciples, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, how could it ever do that? I mean, uh, the way that they lived, the, the, the strictures that they lived under and the, the strain that they lived under. Well, he went on and explained to them that the problem with the Pharisees was that they were whited sepulchers. They looked good on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. This is the reason I think that, in fact, I know that there was such a visceral response to the Lord Jesus. He exposed the weaknesses in their religion, and it was their religion. It wasn't God's religion. It was their religion. Uh, what they had as Judaism looked nothing like what Moses walked off of Sinai with. And they had gutted it and they had uh, infused in its place, they'd robbed it of sincerity and instead uh, infused it with statutes and with ceremony and uh, with uh, human uh, you know, commands and, and, and human precepts. And the Lord Jesus, He exposed all of those things. And what he was saying to his disciples is this, that God's desire and design has never been to change a man from the outside in. It's the reason the law was incapable of doing it because nothing's capable of doing it. God must change a man from the inside out. And that's what he meant when he said that your righteousness has to exceed it. He wasn't saying you're going to live a looser life. He was saying you're going to live a more sincere life. He wasn't saying you're going to live in a permissive manner. He was saying you're going to live in a manner where your righteousness is energized by the very life of God within you. So what should our response be to this liberty? He says we shouldn't use it for an occasion to the flesh. And a great many believers have done that today. Uh, they view the liberty that they have in, in Christ as being a, a means and an opportunity uh, to uh, indulge in some of the things that the law forbid. Can I just remind you, and I don't believe that what Paul's saying here, I don't believe he's saying use liberty as an opportunity to sin. And the reason I don't believe that is because I don't believe that liberty can rightly be used as an opportunity to sin. It's not liberty any longer. 
were under condemnation. Rather, what I think he's saying is this. Our perspective on... If your whole perspective on New Testament Christianity is, praise the Lord, I can eat catfish now. You've missed it. Now, I'm not saying God's against you eating catfish. <laughs> but I'm saying you've missed what it was all about. He says, use not liberty for an occasion of flesh. He says, that's not why it was given. But rather, by love, serve one another. Our proper response to the liberty that we have in Christ Jesus should not be to indulge the flesh, but rather it should be to be able to, in sincerity and in love, serve one another. Minister to people in a meaningful way, born not out of fear of some consequence, but rather out of fidelity to Christ and to that person. So he gives us a word about liberty. And what he's saying is this, that uh, the system of following the Old Testament law is a means of an outward vestige of righteousness that's been put away. Now we're given liberty in Christ Jesus, but that doesn't mean we ought to use that liberty merely for the uh, service of self and indulging the flesh, but rather to serve one another. And then he gives a word about love in verse 14. It says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So there are two things that Paul sets forth as hallmarks of the uh, Spirit-filled life, the walking in the Spirit. One is liberty, what our motive is. But then the other is means. He says that what that ought to produce in our lives is love towards each other. And in fact, if we love each other, motivated by the Spirit of God, that does not destroy the law, it fulfills the law. Now, we need only look at the life of the Lord Jesus to see the perfect example of this. Because He Himself said, I'm not come to destroy the law, I'm come to fulfill the law. He did not come and live as, you know, a, a, a cavalier, permissive man with license. He lived the most righteous life that any man has ever lived. But he did so not because he had to, and certainly not because he feared the consequences otherwise. Can I remind you uh, that if there was ever a man that did not have to place himself in a position to be faced with consequences, it was the Lord Jesus. He was perfect, sinless, and holy. But the reason he did that, not just because he had a holy nature, he could have sat in heaven with a holy nature. So why did he put himself under the yoke of the law? He did so because he loved you and I. And in doing so, in that love, he fulfilled the law. So we see the duty that is performed by loving one another. It fulfills the law. And then we see the devouring that is prohibited. He says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one another. Now, I, this wasn't a part of my notes, but I'm going to say it. We have sort of another juxtaposition here too, don't we? We're either going to love one another or we're going to devour one another. Now, that's you know that's hard to believe until you've been around people for a little while. Some folks, and I'm probably one of them, the only way you can deal with them is you're either going to have to love them in the grace of God or kill them in the power and might of the Lord. One of the two. There's no in-between. And it's interesting that he shows that when we operate in the flesh, our tendency is towards hostility. Our tendency is to bite and to devour one another. He says the danger in that is somebody else can do that to you as well. I found that a, that a right perspective on my own weakness is the best fuel for patience that I could have. When I'm tempted to grow impatient with people, if I'm just reminded that they too have to be patient with me, I find it a lot easier uh, to find patience with them. So we see a word about love. And then he goes into the broader discourse of what he teaches about walking in the Spirit. Now, I want you to notice this very quickly. We'll say a word about it and be done. I want you to notice that Paul reveals to us that walking in the Spirit of God produces three things. 
Now again, what do we mean by walking in the Spirit? Giving the Spirit of God the right of way in our life, allowing Him to govern us, and living in prayerful communion with the Lord. Living as though He's sitting on the, on the car seat right beside you because He is. Keeping an open line of communication with the Lord and allowing Him to lead and guide your life. Walking in the Spirit doesn't look like getting a lightning bolt from heaven. doesn't look like a ton of bricks falling on you. Uh, it doesn't look like some great, grand, supernatural, glorious thing where your countenance will glow with the glory of heaven. That's not what walking in the Spirit looks like. What it looks like is the Spirit of God taking the reins of your life, and when He tells you what to do, you say, Yes, sir, Lord, I'll do what you'd like. I'll do what you ask. That's what we mean by walking in the Spirit. And notice the three things it produces in our life. Look at verses 16 17 with me. Paul says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. I jotted it down this way. The first thing that walking in the Spirit of God produces in our life is a capable consecration. And what I mean by that is this, the way that we live righteously is by letting the Spirit of God lead us in our life. This seems simple. It seems elementary. And yet it's missing from the vast majority of pulpits in our country today. We're told that we need to hold out and hold on and strive and suffer and work and, and slave and sweat and all of these things. And let me say that if you're serving God, it'll involve all of those. But it is a great mistake to think that it is our faithfulness that produces consistency. It is not our faithfulness that produces consistency. It is our faith that produces consistency. You see, faith produces consistency. Consistency produces faithfulness. But we've got it the other way around. We think we will ourselves to be faithful to God and that will make us faithful to God. You know what that produces? A lot of frustration. Uh, what it produces is, is a lot of tear-soaked altars, but not a lot of clean lives. And I've been through this in my life, and you probably have in yours, where the Spirit of God's convicted you about something and You've come down to an altar and fell on it and wept and begged God for victory and, and, and cried until you couldn't cry anymore. And so you got up figuring God was done with you and had answered your prayer. And uh, You got up and you went out into the world on Monday and you gave no thought to God. You paid no mind to Him. You lived your life just like you had on Friday and Saturday and then found yourself failing in your commitment to God. That's not a surprise. That is the tendency of human nature. What you're trying to do is you're trying to go out and you're trying to live righteously in the flesh. Now, not only is it not pleasing to God, but it's not even effective. That's not how Christianity works. It does not work merely through the force of our will. You know what another way of saying the force of our will is? The flesh. It's, what the, fle it's the arm of the flesh. So instead, the Lord gives us the rightful passage, the right way to live the Christian life, the right way to be consecrated. And he, he points out two things. In fact, I'm going to deal with them backwards here because I'm just that kind of guy. The first he deals with is the feebleness of the flesh, or rather the first I'm going to deal with. Look at verse 17. He says this, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now there are two ways of understanding this verse, or maybe we could say that there's two things that we can notice in this verse, for I think they're both there. Uh, the first is this, that the predisposition of your flesh and mind is not to do what God wants. In fact, the more we lean into our flesh, the less we'll do what God wants. It is not within you and I. 
we can make God all the promises we want, all the commitments that we want. Uh, We can knuckle down and buckle down and decide we're going to do right all that we want. And we'll find ourselves failing every single time. Then I also notice this. It says so that you would, you cannot do the things that you would. That's interesting to me, Brother Charlie. And here's why. Because on the face of it, I'd be tempted to disagree. A man can, through the energy of the flesh, perform the outward vestiges of Christianity. They do it all the time. People come and sit in church pews and they've not come because they love the Lord. They've not come because they want to meet with God. They've not come out of obedience to the Lord's mandate, but because culture is dictated. Now, I trust there's nobody here on a Wednesday night prayer meeting uh, that's here for that reason. I trust and hope nobody ever comes through the doors of this church for that reason. But I'm just telling you, there are a lot of places where that's what people do. There are a lot of unregenerate, unborn again, spiritually dead people that sit in church pews every single week, week after week after week. So they are doing the things that they would. Here's the problem. Paul's granting that what you really want above all is to be like Christ and please the Lord. So what we learn is this. If we're not doing it in the energy of the flesh, going back to what we said earlier in the message, if we're not doing it in the spirit, if we're doing it in the energy of the flesh, then whatever we may call it, it is not Bible Christianity. You know why? Because without faith, it's impossible. Not it's improbable. Not it's unlikely, not it's very difficult. It is impossible to please Him. Can I ask you this question? Uh, What is Bible Christianity if it's not pleasing God? Whatever it may be, I don't think we can call it Bible Christianity. So we see the feebleness of the flesh. You can't keep your commitments to God. I can't keep my commitments to God in the energy of the flesh. And even if we were to have the outward appearance of doing so, what we will have accomplished is not what we truly would desire to do if our heart is sincere. Because what we really want is not just to have the outward appearance. We don't just want a form of godliness. We want the power thereof as well. We want to please the Lord. But then I see the faithfulness of the Spirit. Look back at verse 16. What Paul says when he opens this discourse. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, he does not say, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll be empowered to choose to not do so. That's not what he says. He does not say, if you walk in the Spirit, then hopefully that would mean you wouldn't. But rather, he lays it down as two mutually exclusive things. And he says essentially this, that walking in the Spirit will invariably produce in us a life that does not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know why? Because these things are are explicitly two polar opposites. That's what he goes on to explain in verse number 17. You know what the lust of the flesh is, right? It's to govern. It's to master. It's to dictate us what we do. It's the reason that Christ said that no man can serve two masters. You're going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. Because what your flesh wants above all is to rule your life. Therefore, even if we seek to corral and harness our flesh to the purposes of God, at the end of the day, we've still not done anything that would please the Lord because we're still depending on the flesh to do it. By the same token, the Spirit lusted against the flesh too. If the Spirit of God leads you, what that's going to look like is you not depending upon yourself. It is an impossibility. And the reason why is because definitionally, by the very definition, walking in the Spirit is saying, I'm not going to trust myself, I'm going to seek God's wisdom. 
I'm not going to lean upon my own understanding. I'm going to ask God's will and God's way. I'm not going to govern my own life. I'm going to give the Holy Spirit of God the right of way. And you know what you'll find? That's the key to consistency. There is no shortcut to communion with God. I hate to, I hate to tell you that. I know your flesh wants it and my flesh wants it. We want to be able to come to an altar and cry before God and get up and be able to just live automatic. Go out the next day and be a better Christian than we were the day before. I got bad news for you. It just don't work. It's not bad news for you, but now it is bad news for your flesh. There is no way for you to live the Christian life without mortifying self and being in communion with God. There is no way. There's no shortcut. You don't take a vacation from it. You don't take a break from it. You don't meet God on, on Sundays and Wednesdays and, and just try to text Him throughout the rest of the week. No, I'm sorry. You're going to have to spend time with God day in and day out. And you'll find that it is the very spending of time with Him that produces this change in us. Uh, it's not merely that He rubs off on us. It's that if we're going to spend time with Him, the only way to do it is to pray to Him, fellowship with Him, and let Him have the right away in our life. So we see a capable consecration. Number two, we see that it produces a clear conscience. Now I want to read a passage of Scripture for you before we move along in our text. And it's Romans 8.1. You've read this before. You know what it is. But Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now, most preachers want to stop there. And they want to say, glory to God. Most Christians want to stop there. And they want to say, glory to God. But the Holy Ghost does not stop there. He says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So, this state of no condemnation, it is not a positional reality that is granted to us by Calvary, although, in that sense, that is true. It is true that our sins have been put under the blood, and God said in, in Hebrews chapter 10, our sins and our iniquities he'll remember no more. And it is true that what we've asked God to forgive and to pardon will never be brought up again judicially and punitively in your life or in mine. And I praise the Lord for that. And that's good. And we can shout about that. And we can rejoice in that. The only problem is, that's not what the Holy Ghost is talking about in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about practically. He's saying this, that the way a man lives without guilt hanging over his life, is by walking in the Spirit of God and not walking by flesh. You know why? Because instinctively we understand who it is that's in control of our life. And I know that for myself, when I've done something because I know God has instructed it, I'm not saying my flesh does not try to rear itself up and convince me that I may have made a bad decision, but I always have the confidence to be able to deal with it in the right way. I can always remind myself, you know, at the end of the day, I did what the Lord wanted me to do. And so I'm not going to live under condemnation for that. So we, we have this verse about condemnation. Paul expresses it this way. He talks about the condemnation of the flesh. And we'll read through these swiftly. won't expound on every one of them. But he says in verse 18, If ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now what does he mean by that? There are all kinds of Christians that are not led by the Spirit of God. And they judicially are not under the law. They're Gentiles and They'll never, God, at the judgment seat of Christ, God will never look at him and say, right, you, you ate catfish. Now, if you ate 37 catfish in one sitting, God may have something to say about that. But I mean, just the very fact that you did it, God's never going to condemn you for that. Why? Because it's been done away with. The dietary law has been done away with in Jesus Christ. So when he says, if you be led of this, why is there an if there? When he talks about being under the law, he's not talking about judicially. He's not talking about what God's going to judge us for. What he is saying is this, and he says in another place, that the law is given uh, not for the righteous, but for the lawless. Not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And he says this, that 
If a man lives under the flesh, this is what it produces. It says the works of the flesh are manifest. We see them. We know what they are. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. If yours isn't in there, go ahead and put yours down there too. Amen. He gives a laundry list and then he says this. Of the which I tell you before, as I have to also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you know that the best commentary for the Bible is the Bible? And context is king. Paul is not saying in this passage, if a man does these things, it means he's not saved. The same way that in the beginning of verse number 18, he's not saying that if a man is not led by the Spirit of God, then he is under Old Testament law. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's speaking practically. And what he is saying is this, practically speaking, that ain't how a saved person ought to live. That's not the thing that characterizes a Christian's life. The people that live that way are people that aren't inheriting the kingdom of God. They don't know God. They don't have the Spirit of God living within them. Those are the works of the flesh and that's why they live that way. And here's why they're under the law is because the works of the flesh are things that are contrary to, they are trespasses of God's law. They live with a cloud of guilt over them and they should, they're under the law. In other words, they live in a way that brings condemnation to them. And you know, your flesh and my flesh will condemn us. It will cause us to live with guilt in our life. But notice the confidence of the Spirit. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I think that these two verses maybe make this a little bit clearer. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Notice this last phrase. He says, against such there is no law. Now what does that mean? Well, don't read more into it than God said is there. Search through the Old Testament. See if you can find anywhere where goodness is forbidden. Go through the 600 and some odd commandments of the Old Testament and find where God prohibited gentleness. Go back through there and find where God condemned joy. Go, for, go back through there and find where God said it was a sin to be meek or to have faith. You won't find it. There is no law. Therefore, a man living under the Old Testament that lived a life exemplary of those things, they didn't live under the penalty of the law because there is no law against those things. But a man that lived the way that's cataloged in verses 18 through 22, that man would have been condemned by the law. And what he's saying is this. Now the function of that in this New Testament dispensation of grace is thus, if a man lives uh, by the energies of the flesh, he lives a life of condemnation, a life of guilt and a life of shame. But if he walks in the Spirit, there won't be a single thing that walking in the Spirit, you'll never be sorry for it and there won't be a single thing walking in the Spirit of God you'll ever have to apologize to God over. You might do things that you got to apologize to family over. <laughs> You won't ever have to do anything that you have to apologize to God over. You know what it does? It produces a clear conscience. I can know in my life and you can know in your life that we've done what God has asked of us. We've been obedient unto Him. So it produces a clear conscience. And then finally notice this. I'm going to say a word and be done. Look at verse 24. Paul says, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. It goes on, we'll say a word about chapter 6 here before we close. But it produces three things in your life and mine. One is a capable consecration. You want to know how you, you become consistent and by that consistency faithful to God? Uh, you do so not by just willing it, not by making your mind up, not by really, really meaning it this time. 
But rather you do it by waking up day in and day out. Like Paul said, I die daily. Crucifying self. And what that looks like is saying, Lord, this day does not belong to me. It belongs to you. And I'm going to live it however you desire for me to live it. I'm going to be obedient to you. A capable consecration. Number two, a clear conscience. You won't ever have to apologize to God for anything you do while obeying the Spirit of God. You know why? Because it's His Spirit. It's His Spirit. And it's Him with whom the Hebrews writer says with whom we have to do. And then finally, you know what it produces? It produces a consistent condition in our life. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it makes our life consistent with the things it ought to be consistent with. For instance, we see that if we walk in the Spirit, it produces a life that is consistent with redemption. How many of you have been saved? You know how you live like a saved person? By walking in the Spirit. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Look at verse 24. He says, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. What do you think that whole thing about Jesus dying for you was all about? It was about Him doing for you what you could not do for yourself. Because your flesh wasn't able. Hey, listen. Uh, the, the law, uh, Paul said, was weak. Uh, the law, it wasn't a problem. But what the law could not do in that it was weak. It wasn't the law itself, but it says uh, it was weak uh, through the flesh. What flesh? Your flesh. My flesh. The law didn't have flesh. It was you and I that has flesh. So what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He came and He showed that uh, you and I had no ability to live according to God's standards. Men could look at Christ and say rightfully, I could never live like that. His life of perfection condemned sin in the flesh. It showed mankind that the flesh had no means to live righteously. Then you know what He did? He took that unrighteousness and He put it on Himself on the cross of Calvary. And He took His righteousness and said, By faith, I'll robe you in that righteousness. I'm saying this, Calvary was all about proving to us and dealing with the weakness of our flesh. How foolish it would be then to turn around and try to live the Christian life in the energy of the flesh. That's why Paul says in verse 25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Every single person is born again. You got born again by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God quickened you and indwells you. He is alive within you. And the life that you have, you have through the Spirit of God. Now don't it just make sense that if we live in the flesh, we ought to walk in the, or if we live in the Spirit, we ought to walk in the Spirit as well. It is a life consistent with redemption. Then notice he says in verse 26, now it's easy to think this is separate, but it's not. He says, let us not be desirous of vain glory. Why does he say that? Because that's something the flesh wants. It's not something the Spirit wants. In fact, it is very contrary for the Spirit of God. You know that Christ said this about the Holy Spirit, that when He came, He would not speak of Himself. He would not testify of Himself. He'd speak of Jesus Christ. Much of the modern charismatic movement, you can tell on the face of it, it's not biblical and it's not scriptural. Because it's more about the Holy Ghost than it is about Jesus Christ. And that tells me it's not the Holy Ghost at all. Because the Holy Ghost, when He shows up, He ain't going to talk about tongues. He ain't going to talk about prophecy. He ain't going to talk about Himself. He ain't going to talk about some manifestation. When He shows up, He's going to talk about Jesus. That's what He wants to talk about. He don't want to talk about Himself. He doesn't glorify Himself. Therefore, if we're walking in the Spirit, we're not going to be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. We could go on and on. But look at verse number 1 of chapter 6. He then says this. I don't think it's disconnected. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, 
restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what's happened? We've been inducted into a new type of law now. And this law is exercised not by the energy of the flesh, but by the energy of the Spirit of God. And when we live a life in obedience to the Spirit of God, it's consistent with redemption, but it's also consistent with restoration. You know, one of the functions and jobs of the Spirit of God in your life, just like David said in the book of Psalms, He restoreth my soul, is to set us back into a right relationship with God. Who is it that does that in our life? I mean, if I go out and live in sin, who is it that tells me I've sinned? It's the Spirit of God. Who is it that convinces me that I cannot continue to live that way? It's the Spirit of God. Who is it that brings me back into communion with God and fellowship with God? It's not God the Father. He's sitting on His throne. It's not Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Who is the one that's dealing with me when I've messed up? It's the Spirit of God. So His business in your life and mine, one of the purposes is restoration. When we mess up, when we do what's wrong, He puts us in a, in a right condition, in a right position. So don't it just make sense if He does that for us that, and, and we obey Him, we let Him lead us. Don't it just make sense He'll do that with other people as well? He'll enable us. Man, this is a whole other sermon. I ain't got time for it tonight. But you know, forgiveness and restoration of people can only happen through the Spirit of God. I think this is one of the great blind spots in our life because we think we can go down to an altar and weep, give it over to God, Beg God to help us and give us grace and we'll get up and we'll feel 100% better about that person. No, you're going to hate their guts just like you did before you went to that altar. And you're going to hate them every second of the day if the Spirit of God is not in control of your spirit and of your attitude. There's no shortcuts to it. Uh, it's, uh, you're only going to be able to love them through the grace of God. You're only going to be able to love them by the Spirit of God. There's no shortcut around that. I know that's bad news for our flesh because our flesh wants an easy fix. We live in the microwave age, right? We want everything done in 20 seconds and the ding of a chime. That's what we want. But I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. There's no shortcut to that. You know, I'm reminded, and I'll say this and be done. I always think about this, Brother Charlie, when I think about the, this passage of Scripture. I think about Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. And I, I think about how God, how, how David positioned Mephibosheth and he put him at the table and he restored so many things about him, didn't he? But you know something interesting, the Holy Ghost goes out of its way to tell us at the close of, of that passage, at the close of Second Samuel chapter 9, what is it, Brother Ken? The very last thing it says, it says, And Mephibosheth was lame on his feet all of his days. The same God that picked him up and brought him out of Lodabar could have given him his, his legs. The same God that made him a son of a king could have given him his legs back. The same God that restored all of his wealth could have given him his legs back. But you know the problem is, God had given him his legs back, he would have got up and walked away from that table. And so those feet stayed broken for the rest of his days. And it kept him close to the king all the time. When David was sent into exile, the Bible says that Mephibosheth mourned and wept and he, he didn't anoint himself and he fasted and let his fingernails and his hair grow long and all because he said, I'm not going to do any of these things until the king is back with us. Uh, you know why? Because he knew he needed the king. He, the, those feet of flesh would fail him. Every time. But seated at the king's table, he didn't need those feet of flesh. What I'm saying is this, that in your life and mine, the arm of flesh will fail us every time. It's designed to do so. It's quite inconvenient to our flesh that it's going to take daily mortification of ourselves to live this Christian life. But you know what it produces? It means we never leave his table. We stay close all the time. 
That's the only way to do it. That's what walking in the Spirit of God is. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. You know the altar's already open. It don't ever close around here. If God touched your heart, I want you to slip out of your seat right now and come down and deal with Him. He wouldn't have spoken to you about it if it wasn't important. So why don't you meet Him down here if He if He dealt with you. Father, we, we love you and thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for the truth of your Word. Thank you, Lord, for the instruction that you give us. I pray that you would, Father, uh, deal with our hearts about these matters and draw us closer unto thee. Bless this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name.